Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the cloud his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He sets the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valley sank down to the place that you have appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they may not gain cover, so that they may not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys, they flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field, the wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell, they sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them, the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun to know it's time for setting. You make darkness, and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep out. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go, to the, sh there go the ships and the Leviathan, which you have formed to play in it. These all look to you to give their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. So, Father in heaven, by this word which you have written, we pray that you would teach us to be worshipers of you. We pray that you would cause us to remember your greatness, your mercy, your nature, creation, your goodness, your kindness. And we pray that you would stir in us to want to glorify you with our lives, with our words, 
with our whole being. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't already, please take your Bibles and turn them to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. We here at Redeemer have been working through the Psalms, um, not all 150 of them, but um, working through them one at a time. And we've called this series um, Prayers and Songs because that's what the Psalms are. They're, they're prayers that were offered, personal prayers, congregational prayers. They were songs that were sung, personal songs, congregational songs. But one of the obvious reasons that these are collected for us is to teach us how to pray and to teach us how to worship. So teach us to pray personally, teach us to pray congregationally, but also teach us to worship personally, teach us to worship congregationally. And one thing that I'm learning about myself, and I'm just going to assume that you're like me, and if not, this will just be me thinking out loud for you for the next few minutes, is that, that worship doesn't come naturally. We need the Spirit of God to breathe life into our worship, but also learning how to worship God is um, it's a cultivated art form. Uh, how many of you, the first time you rode a bike, just jumped on and said, I got this? You could put many other things up there, but the reality is, in Christ, our worship, no matter how broken, no matter how feeble, is acceptable and glorifying to God, and yet... There's this other sense in which cultivating a heart of worship, cultivating a mind of worship, cultivating a life of worship, cultivating a congregation of worship is something that's learned and something that is practiced and something that we grow into. And so I believe what I want us to do over the next few weeks near the end of the book of Psalms is to consider what it looks like to learn worship. And this particular psalm is going to really push us down that path and then Next week, we're going to look at Psalm 107, which is going to push us down that path in another way. But, but our, our main point today is that God desires His children to worship Him. And He has given us Psalm 104 to help us learn to worship Him. So God desires that we as His children would worship Him and he has given us Psalm 104 to help us learn to worship Him. That's what we'll see this morning. So, um, the question, I guess, is does this psalm actually say that? And so, let's look at it together. And, and for those of you who like to take notes, the first point, and it'll be on the screen here, bless the Lord. So, the psalmist gives us a great clue what the main takeaway of this psalm is. Look at verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then turn to the end. Verse 32. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. So in English class, in your literature and in your writing, you're taught to, to put your main points at the beginning and the end of what you're writing. And so this psalm begins and ends with the same call. It is to praise God for His greatness and to be active in praising His name. That, that's verse 1. That's verse 35. 
And so I'm here to argue that the main point of this psalm is that God desires to be praised. God desires to be worshipped. To do so, the psalmist uses a term that, that we don't use a lot, and it's the term bless. Bless the Lord. Like in the South, we bless people's hearts, and that's not a compliment, by the way. Um, on Twitter, we hashtag blessed, and that's a trite way to say something nice has happened to me today. But here, bless the Lord, this word, while it's not a common phrase for us, means to praise God and to yield before Him. So this word bless means to praise God and to yield ourselves to Him. It's often used in the context of kneeling before a great being. So bless the Lord is a biblical psalm, Hebrew way to say, praise God for His greatness. And so really, in chapter 35, or excuse me, verse 35, bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. That's a repetitive way of re-saying the same thing. Be active in praising God for who He is and for His greatness. That's what we're being called to do in Psalm 104. Now, worship is another word for being active in praising God. Um, it's a churchy word that, that maybe we talk about so much that it loses its meaning. So yes, worship is what we are doing this morning. We are gathered in the name of Jesus to give to God the praise that is due His name, and that is worship. But worship's not necessarily something that you attend as much as it is something that we do together. So we worship together, but in our lives... In our praying, in our thinking, in our speaking, and in our living, when we honor God for His greatness, we honor God for His work in our lives, we are worshiping Him. And what this psalm is saying is, be found giving to God the praise that is due His name. And there really is a, an intriguing, helpful, thoughtful picture of worship for us in verse 31. So, so look there at verse 31. Verse 31 says, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. So what's being said there at the beginning of verse 31 is, May God continually receive glory and in the Bible, when you see glory, that means fame, that means praise, okay? So if you go to a concert that you love, and you can't stop speaking about how awesome the concert was, you are exalting the fame of the performer, and you are glorifying the performer for his performing skill. That's not necessarily bad, but that's exactly what it means to glorify God. It's to exalt what makes him unique, to exalt what makes him praiseworthy, to exalt what makes him famous, and declare it. Declare his fame continually and forever. But then there's something else this says about worship in the second phrase. May the Lord rejoice in His works. 
Now, I have to be honest, the first five times I read this psalm this week, that phrase made me stop in my tracks. I actually circled it and put a huge question mark. What is the psalmist talking about? But what he's saying is God delights in His creation. God delights in sustaining His creation. God delights in redeeming His creation. God delights in pouring His grace, His mercy out upon His creation. And when He looks down upon what He has created and sees it doing what He created it to do in such a way to honor Him, what the psalmist is saying is that God rejoices in that. God finds joy in His creation being and doing what He intended it to be. And so there is a picture of worship where God is looking upon His creation and rejoicing and delighting in His creation, being and doing what He made them to be and to do. And then we're looking back up to Him and praising Him for what He has done. So God's not worshiping us, but God delights when we are what He created us to be. And when we're verbalizing thanksgiving to God, when we're telling of His creative power, when we're telling of His goodness, when we're speaking of His mercy, when we're living differently because of His grace in our lives, we're glorifying Him and He delights in His creation doing what He created us to do. So think about that. Right now, if our worship gathered is in the name of Christ and is acceptable for God, then we're being told that God is delighting in what we are doing right now. It's not this empty being on a throne saying, give it, praise me, praise me, bring it on, praise me, praise me, bring it on, bring it on. I know I'm worth it. Come on, come on, come on. That's not it at all. It's God looking over His creation, being being joyful about what He's made, longing to see the curse of sin set aside, longing to see the, the redemptive power of the blood of Jesus exalted and honored. And God is engaging with us when we worship Him. God cares that we approach Him rightly. He cares that we bring Him joy. He cares that we are grateful to Him. He cares that we come into His presence with our hurts. He cares that we cry out to Him. He cares that we delight in Him, and we're told that He rejoices at the works that He's made. So verse 31 gives us this picture of what's going on in worship. God made us to give Him glory, and as we give Him glory, yes, He's receiving the glory, but He delights in it. He rejoices in it. We're being told that God is very active and desirous of His people to be found giving Him the praise that is due His name. So the purpose of this psalm is that we be found worshiping God like that. Now, I hesitate to give an example because there's really nothing in this world that can compare to what I was just talking about, but let me see if I can kind of picture what I'm talking about. Um, I like to smoke meat, and I'm so-so at it, okay? But last Saturday, I made some ribs, and they were I mean, they were good. I mean, you know what it's like? You start the day before, you thaw them out, you season them, you put them in the refrigerator, you, you sit them out to let them get to room temperature, you build the, the perfect fire at just the right temperature, 
You put them on. You go to pick up your son. You tell your other son to not let the fire burn out, but he lets the fire burn out anyway. And so when you get back, you have to restart the fire and remake the perfect fire. And you give up all hope of the ribs ever turning out. But then six hours later, you take them off because it's dinner time. And you let them sit. And you cut into them and you take a bite and you go, this is good. I am proud of what I have made. And then, you know what I did? I wanted my family to enjoy the ribs. So I'm like, here, take a bite. No, you can't just have a bite. You have to have a whole rib. Like, eat it and enjoy it. And then when my kids were like, Dad, these are good. Like, my heart was like welling up. And my wife was like, these are really good. Like, surprised, but complimentary at the same time. Like, like and my heart is welling up. And what's going on is my family is glorifying me for being a good smoker of meat. And I am rejoicing in them acknowledging what I've done and enjoying what I've done. And that's a little bit trite, but I believe that's exactly what's going on here in verse 31. God takes great joy when we enjoy what He has done. And when we receive His blessings, and His blessings cause us to praise Him and cause us to live for His glory. That's the call of this psalm. It's not just some empty act of, yes, I have to praise you, God. Oh God, you are great and you are good. and We thank you for this food. Amen. I'm not against remembered prayers at dinner because that prayer can also be filled with life. God is great. God is good. We thank Him for this food. So, so it's about our hearts. It's about how we approach the Lord. But God is very interested that we worship Him with hearts full of joy, that we use our, our minds and our souls and our beings for what He intended them to be used for. And as we do so, He engages with our worship and He delights in it. And doesn't that change things? Doesn't that mindset change what we're doing right here? This is not an empty room singing up to an empty, distant being who just wants to have his ego stroked. But this is a room of people who were created by God in His image, who strayed against Him, who He sent His Son to die for our sins, to redeem us and to restore us, so that when we come into His presence, we're accepted by Him, and He is looking on to us and delighting in the fact that we have received His mercy, we have received the blood of Jesus, and we are coming to Him to glorify Him with our words and our deeds and our actions. That's all whole new vision of what we're trying to do right here, right? Whole new vision. And I would argue that that vision carries forward to you when you go home and you get up in the morning and you're trying to figure out how you can use your day for the glory of God. And that vision goes to your dinner table tonight when you sit down with your family and you're trying to figure out how this little ragtag band of people can honor and glorify God. This vision goes with us. He looks on His creation and He rejoices when we glorify Him. He rejoices when we praise Him. He rejoices when we worship Him. So, I'm here to argue that doing this type of worship is actually a learned behavior. It doesn't come naturally to us. And what I want to do in Psalm 104, the next week in Psalm 107, is to help us learn this, this behavior of worship that pleases God and in which God delights as we live that way. So number one, a step forward toward learning worship is to pray for help. 
is to pray for help. Now, this passage doesn't say to pray for help, but if we step back to the totality of the Bible, the totality of what God's given us, there is nothing that we're called to do in the Scripture that we're called to do alone. I'll say that one more time. There is nothing that we're called to do in the Scripture that we're called to do alone. Because if we belong to God through Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within us to help us and to breathe life into us. And we can pray that the Spirit of God would help us worship God in word and in deed and in thought and in reality. So all worship begins with dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Second, a step forward toward learning worship is to let your emotions out. Let them out. And by out, I mean don't pin them up. Worship involves the whole of who we are, which means our mind and our heart and the totality of our being. You can go back and look at Psalm 95. You can go back and look at last week's sermon. I'm really prone and inclined to re-preach it here, but I will not. But let your worship out. We said last week, joy will come out in some way. Joy over something will come out in some way. Let your worship out. Sometimes I wonder if people in our tribe of the church think that worship is sitting around in silence, thinking deep thoughts about God and going, mmm, that's good, together. But we don't even really know what we're thinking. But the reality is our worship is intended to be let out. So that's Psalm 95, go back and listen to it. And then third, if we want to move forward into worship, we must learn from the Bible. The Bible in general, the Psalms in particular, are written to teach us to worship God. The Psalms are written to teach us to worship God. If I could, I want to quote a man named Jeffrey Authors, and he wrote a book called Preaching as Remembering. I'm sorry, Preaching as Reminding. Here's what he says. He says, humans are not machines. For one thing, we forget. So we need the Bible editorial. We need the Bible to teach us to worship because we are prone to forget. And for another, we actively select, highlight, and discard elements from the past to form a cohesive narrative that makes sense in the present. So what he is saying is we edit what we do remember to fit with what we feel right now. Counselors call that catastrophizing. But have you ever had a really bad day? And in that day, you are convinced that God doesn't love you, God is not for you, God would never do anything good for you because you've had a really bad day? Anybody but me been there? Have you ever been emotionally sad? And so you see everything through the lens of sadness and you just assume that, that, that God's work in our, His world is creating your sadness? Anybody besides me ever been there? What this man is reminding us is that our minds are prone to rewrite history to make sense of the present. So he says, to counter this propensity to edit memories, God has given us narrative and ceremony. The majority of the Bible is a narrative 
a fixed account of God's action in redemptive history. And he commands children of the covenant to recall these actions with concrete ceremonies such as the Lord's Supper. What authors is arguing is that God has given us the Bible, the worship of his people, the Lord's Supper as ways to rewrite the present so that we remember the greatness and the faithfulness of God. What he's saying is we need the scriptures and we need the church to attune our minds to who God is and what God has done so that our praise will be full and we will never be found forgetting the greatness of God. So worship comes and is learned as we pray for help from the Spirit, as we let our emotion out, and as we learn from the Bible. Now, in two particular ways, Psalm 104 is a piece of the Bible that teaches us to worship. So the second point is, remember God is other. Remember God is other. And this is the first way that Psalm 104 teaches us that God, how to worship God. So in verses 1 through 9, what we see is in a poetic language, the psalmist is laying out for us the nature and the character of God that is not like us. He is very great. He is clothed with splendor and majesty. He is covered in light. He stretched out the heavens like a tent. He laid the beams of the water. He made the waters like the beams of His chambers. The clouds are His chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes His messengers winds and His ministers a flaming fire. A way to say that all the beings of the earth work for Him. He set the, founda- he set the earth on its foundation so that it could never be moved. He covered the deep like a garment, cause the waters to stand above the mountains. What is being told to us in these nine verses is that God is not like us, and that is a good thing. He is great. He is powerful. He created everything. Everything that exists is by the word of His power. Everything that exists flows from Him. The Lord that we worship is not like us, and that is a good thing. He is not weak like us. He does not slumber nor sleep like us. He is not prone to rebellion and sin like us. He does not prone to do whatever He has to do to make His way the right way like us. God always does what is best to glorify Him and to minister to His creatures. God is always good, He is always holy, He is always pure, and He is always righteous. The worship of God begins by being reminded that God is not like us, and that is a good thing. And that's what we mean by God is other. This, is, to me, is a very parallel reality to that passage in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is before the throne of God, and he falls down, and all he can say is, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord. Right? You know the passage? You're familiar with it? Holy simply means other. It means not like us. And in Hebrew, repeating something three times is saying other to the greatest order. It's saying holiest of holiest of holiest. There is none like this God, and that is a good thing. And so the psalmist is telling us that worship begins 
by remembering and recounting and telling of the greatness of God and how He is not like us, and that is a good thing. Second, this will be the third point. Remember the blessing of creation. Remember the blessing of creation. And what the psalmist does with the rest of the psalm, so verse 10 through 35, is he tells us that God's creation brings blessing to God's people. Or we could say it this way, that God's creation brings blessing to the other parts of God's creation. So have you ever been told, like, go outside and look at the Grand Canyon and think about how awesome God is? You ever been told that? I think it works, by the way. But if you have a disagreeable, overly analytical mind like mine, you go out and you look at the Grand Canyon and you go, man, where did all that come from? And, and like, was that the flood? And then we in, I, my mind enters into all these arguments about how old the earth is. And I'm just up there at the top of the Grand Canyon having an argument with myself. Anybody? Okay. So yeah, the Grand Canyon ought to lead us to worship. It should. God made that. And it's overwhelming. But what goes on in this psalm is is, is a step beyond that. The psalmist is going to lay out creation after creation after creation, but then he's going to tie it to how that creation brings tangible blessing to the rest of God's creation. Does that make sense? So for example, he's going to say in verse 10 that God made springs of water. And then he's going to point out how those springs give nourishment and quench the thirst of the beast of the field. So you see what's going on there? God made the springs, God made the water, and God's creation brings blessing to the beast of the field. And then he's going to say, God made the heavens and the mountains, and the whole earth is satisfied at what he has made. That's verse 12. Then in verse 14, he's going to say, God made the grass and the livestock are fed off of it. And then in verse 14, he's going to say, God created plants so that man could cultivate them and enjoy them. For example, verse 15, the plants bring us food and wine which gladden the heart. And verse 15, they bring oil which makes our face shine. In verse 15, they bring bread which strengthens our heart. And then verse 16, we're told that the trees are watered so that the birds have homes. And in verse 18, the mountains and the rocks were made to give refuge for wildlife. And in verse 19, God made the darkness and the seasons so that the the animals could go out and hunt by night and be fed and nourished. And then God made the day so that the wildlife could rest and so we could rise up and work. And there's a whole other sermon there. But the point is, God made everything, and everything that God made is a great blessing to God's creation. So notice this. What the psalmist does is he backs us into a logical trap. He says, you're exuding the blessing of God's creation whether you acknowledge it or not. You have food because God gave it to you, and he deserves the praise for that food whether you give it to him or not. 
And you have water because God created the springs and the water and He gave it to you. And He deserves the praise for it whether you give it to Him or not. But so what the psalmist does is he says, yeah, look out. Look out at the creation. Look out at the created order. Look out at everything God made. But don't just stop there. Connect what God made to the tangible blessing that it brings to you and to your brothers and to your sisters and to your family and to all the created order. Because when we see that everything God made brings blessing to God's people, we are much more likely to pause and be grateful and be thankful and give him the worship that is due his name so what this psalm is saying to us is yes look out but as you look out make a connection to the fact that everything god made has the purpose of bringing blessing to to the people to the animals to the earth and that everything god made has the purpose of him receiving the glory that is due his name so this is all summarized for us in verse 24 and following. Turn there with me, if you will. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both great and small. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. You see what's going on? Everything we see is your manifold work, which was done in wisdom. And, verse 27, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and, re- and you renew the face of the ground. So notice what the psalmist sums all this up with. Everything that was made was made by God for the purpose of blessing his creation and enabling his creation to yield back to him the worship and the praise and the glory that's due him. Every single bit of it. And so the argument is that remembering that God is not like us, that he is other, and remembering that everything God created was intended to be a blessing for God's creation causes us to stop, to look to him, to speak his greatness and to seek to receive His blessing in a way that glorifies His name. So this plays out with this active remembering. May the glory, verse 31, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to Him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Notice the result of remembering that God is other and remembering the blessing of creation. The result is singing. The result is singing the praise 
of God as long as we are alive and forevermore. That's verse 33. The result is active remembering. That's verse 34. May, the medita- may my meditation be pleasing to Him. A way to think of meditation is actively thinking about God and who God is and what God has done. And so we're told that, that remembering this otherness of God and remembering the blessing of His creation leads us to active remembering. Now let's just pause there. How many of you have ever actively meditated, I mean, passively, accidentally meditated on God's greatness? Anybody? It's not the common occurrence, though, right? Remembering who God is, remembering what God has done, normally calls us to engage and to pursue and to be active. Active in remembering who God is and active in remembering what God has done. I think the place for us all to grow is to be active in remembering the greatness of God. He calls this my meditation. May it be pleasing to Him. A couple things. Um, In this book, The Cross-Centered Life, C.J. Mahaney says that one way we can do this is at the end of every day think of everything good that happened to us and everything good that we have done and give God the appropriate praise that he deserves for that. Because in effect, most of our faith is rooted around crying out to God in desperation when we need him and taking the glory for the good things that flow from us. It is a right impulse to cry out to God when we need Him. It's also a right impulse to cry out to God when things are awesome. So be active in remembering the goodness and the greatness of God. Now, my family's not perfect, and I'm almost hesitant to throw this example out there, but after last week's sermon, my wife and I were sitting around talking, and we're like, okay, how do we do this with our kids? How do we do this with our kids? And this is the brilliant thing that we came up with. Kids come home from school, husband, wife comes home from work. What's the first question that almost every one of us asks? How was your day? All we have to do is take that question. It was funny, you guys actually participated. That's good, right? Take that one question and just push it a little bit further. Go from how was your day to how was God at work in your day? Go from how was your day to how did God bless you today? Go from how was your day to how did God sustain you today? And be busy talking about that around the table. If you don't have anybody around your table, you can call me. We'll talk about it, okay? But be busy going there because the more we go there, the more we're attuning our minds to the fact that God is the one who has given us all these things for our blessing and for His glory, and let's be fine blessing His I'm completely out of time. The result is singing. The result is active remembering. And the result is longing for God to receive more glory. So verse 36, let the sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. That seems out of place a little bit, doesn't it? One of those good, like, destroy some bad people kind of things. I think the purpose of that in the flow of this psalm is 
let those who don't give you this praise that is due you, let, let that go away. Let, let more glory and more praise flow toward you. So the result of this is a heart that sings, lips that sing, minds that are joyful, active remembering and longing for God to be glorified. The ability to come into God's presence like this, worship team, you can go ahead and come, is something that was purchased for us by Jesus on the cross. And so here at Redeemer, we recognize that we are humans who need to be reminded of who God is, and we participate in the ceremony of the Lord's Supper as a way to remind ourselves that our hope, our faith, our life, And the blessing of God comes to us and flows to us through Jesus Christ. So here at Redeemer, we would invite everyone who is a Christian, everyone who has explicitly placed your faith in Jesus for salvation, we would invite you to take the bread and take the cup with us. In just a moment, some folks are going to come and pass the bread and pass the cup, and then I'll come back up in a few minutes and we'll take them together. So at this time, the team's going to play. We'd invite you to sing. We'd invite you to think about... Um, the greatness of God and the glory that's due him. And we'll come in a few minutes and take the bread and cup together.